you know, I want to help build the future of the continent by solving its biggest problems and turning them into fantastic business opportunities. Silicon Valley likes to say that it's making the world a better place. But that's mostly bullshit. The problems that most famous tech companies are solving aren't real problems. But in other countries, developing countries, there are entrepreneurs who are building things that are actually changing people's lives in very practical ways. That's what this podcast is about. I'm David Madden, and you're listening to The Revolution of Necessity. On this podcast, we share the stories of tech entrepreneurs in developing countries. These are people who are innovating in places where technology could genuinely make the world a better place. This podcast is supported by Omidyar Network. Omidyar Network is a philanthropic investment firm set up by the guy who created eBay, Pierre Omidyar, and his wife, Pam. If you like this podcast, please take a minute to subscribe and to rate us. Coming up, a wunderkind from Nigeria. He launched his first startup and online learning platform while he was still an undergrad in university. One day, we got an email from the, from the dean. Hey, guys, you got to shut down your website. <laughs> or we'll sue you. <laughs> it's a small matter of intellectual property. You know, just a tiny thing. <laughs> His next company, Andela, is one of Africa's biggest tech success stories. Get a job, no experience required. <laughs> Recently, Fast Company named his third venture, Flutterwave, one of the most innovative companies in the world. At Flutterwave, we say uh, Africa is not a country, but we make it feel like one. We'll talk about all this and more coming up. But first, the man himself. His name is Ian Abudye, but everyone calls him E. E, welcome to the Revolution Necessity Podcast. Thank you, Dave. Thank you. It's great to have you here, E. I gotta ask, you're only 26, right? Yes. As of when this was taped. <laughs> <laughs> you're only 26, and you've already started three pretty amazing businesses. When you were growing up, which wasn't that long ago, still growing you, up. <laughs> did you always want to be an entrepreneur? Not really. Uh, my parents would tell the story when I was a kid. Every three days, I would change what I wanted to be, right? So one day, I wanted to be a taxi driver. The next day, I wanted to be a policeman. And the one theme across all those things was that they got cash. <laughs> so wherever there was a lot of, like somebody was collecting cash right there, short term, it didn't matter how low the job was. I, that was the job I wanted to do. But um, I guess as I grew up, um, uh, I, I kind of had several crises of identity moments where it became less about what I wanted to be, but more about what I wanted to do. It's now a lot less about like, who are you? You know, are you an entrepreneur? No, I, you know, I just want to solve, you know, I want to help build the future of the continent by solving its biggest problems and turning them into fantastic business opportunities. So that's kind of where I'm at now. <laughs> So you were born and raised right here in Nigeria. Yes. Yaba. In, in Yaba. <laughs> yes. In the Yabakon Valley. Yes. <laughs> Before it was the Yabakon Valley. Before it was the Yabakon Valley, yes. <laughs> um, but you ended up going to university in Waterloo yes, in Canada. Yes, I, I went to Waterloo. Yeah. yeah. Tell us, how, how did this happen? When it, it was time, 
um, and my brother had found a, a school to go to, a prep school to go to, he told my parents, hey, you know, for the price of one kid, you could send like, and maybe a little more, you could send two. You know, my Nigerian parents never let up a deal ever. Sure. They think you're cheating them <laughs> when they do. So my dad was like, he just did the math in his head and he was like, and just like, hey, E, uh, Sam, he just calls me Sam. So he said like, Sam, Junior, you, you go with your brother um, to, to Canada. And that was literally my luck. And when I got to Canada, I was so terrified by the prospect that they would bring me back that I worked so hard to do all my courses. I did 10 courses in one semester. Wow. And then I, uh, my guidance counselor um, was a Waterloo grad. I never heard ah, about the school. Okay. And he was like, they pay you to go to school. And like, you know, my, my instincts from what I told you late earlier, I was like, where is money? I'm like, I really want to be there. So I went and read up a lot about it. And I saw that you could actually be earning money while going to school. And so I, that was the only Canadian school I applied to. So maybe not everyone knows this, but in the tech world, University of Waterloo is famous. It is. It's sometimes referred to as the MIT uh, of Canada. And some cool companies have come out of there, mm -hmm. perhaps mm -hmm. most famously the, the makers of BlackBerry. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's a hotbed of entrepreneurialism. Yep. Now, you weren't studying computer science. No, I wasn't. But being in that environment, how did that yeah, influence it, your career choice? It, it changed my life. I had an experience in Waterloo that really changed my life. And it really came out of the fact of what it was, the kind of place it was. First year of school, I get to orientation. And my friend, my roommate, uh, his name is Pierre. And the, the way we met was very interesting. Some scrawny kid, white kid just taps my back. And he's like, hey, uh, how are you doing? You know, I'm like, I'm good. I'm a freshman. It's like, yeah, I'm a freshman too. I need a place to stay tonight. Because <laughs> my residence is not ready. Can I stay at yours? And I'm like, yeah, I just met you 20 seconds ago. But why not? You're probably not a serial killer. And if you are, well... I guess it's fun. <laughs> so he stays at my place and, and we became really good friends. As part of his study program, E's friend Pierre spends some time in Silicon Valley. When he returns, he gets E all excited about startups. We started to talk about his experience in Silicon Valley. Then it was the first time that I really thought about tech as something more than just something I could use on Twitter or Facebook, but like something that human beings could actually make, right? Like, like people like me and Pierre, <laughs> not just like Mark Zuckerberg, God, you know? So that really changed my perspective. And at about the same time, the university was establishing something known as the Velocity Program. And so it was this entrepreneurial residence that you could go to and run a business from. So I think Wallaloo really, um, in terms of the environment that it was, it was this really small tech ecosystem um, that really grew from engaging its students and giving them an avenue for them to um, engage in tech entrepreneurship. And a lot of the folks that were in my cohort and even after are really, really successful entrepreneurs um, today. Well, it had such a big impact on you that it you did. started your first company while you were still studying. Yeah. Tell us about... Yeah, so, so yeah, so in 2010, me and Pierre had met up, we we're talking, um, we we're thinking about what we could do together. You know, there was this idea, um, that, that he had for an online learning thing. I mean, it was, it was pretty obvious at the time because this was like kind of the beginning of the wave of ed tech companies, right? So what we did was 
we saw there was a huge need for past questions because Waterloo had a unique thing at the time. The professors didn't think it was worth their while to to actually rewrite the the past questions. Like they would just take the old versions. Yeah, and and it, just, for the exams, you mean? Yes, yeah. They just take the old versions and just do them again. So whoever had the most past question papers answered. One. So what we did was we would buy those past question papers, photostat them, and upload them to our platform. Oh. And then we would we had this technology we, we had built that allowed you to stream them because we wanted people to pay for access to them, mm. but not to download them. Right. So they would pay a subscription for access to them, and they could take snippets. Yeah. And then we would have a team of people answering the questions. Oh. And that actually worked. I mean, that went really wild. The startup is going well. But he wants to bring EdTech back home to Nigeria. So after they graduate, Pierre and E sell the business, and E gets to work on his second startup. I had this long-running obsession with my own country, naturally, right? <laughs> and and so I always saw the world through the lens of what was going on back home. And it was clear that while I had done this successful business in Canada, there was even greater need for what for the stuff I was doing in Nigeria. Um, and so I, I would talk a lot about it to a lot of people who were back home. Um, but then it just seemed like empty talk. I was just looking for an excuse to come back. So my excuse was I couldn't find a job. <laughs> but I don't think I looked as hard, to be honest. So, so yeah, I just I basically stayed a year to raise capital and then flew back to Nigeria. So before you got on the plane yes. back to Lagos, you had already come up with the idea for your yeah. your next business, right? Absolutely. I had to. And my parents would never let me come back <laughs> <laughs> without something that looked like a plan. I mean, I, I had to have something to tell them. Hey, I'm coming back to do this. <laughs> and you'd also already raised some money for it as well. Yeah, yeah I raised, I raised uh, not a lot of capital, but I had about $30,000. And tell us... What was the original vision yeah. for Fora, your new company? So the original vision was, there's an education problem in Africa, we need to fix it. So the way we will fix it is we're going to take all these, we're going to take the, the MOOCs. These massive online, yeah, online courses, yeah. right? And we're going to distribute it and everybody will be educated and the world will be a fantastic place. Now, a few weeks into our research, we discover, okay, who's going to pay for this thing that you guys are trying to do? And then we came up with this genius idea, quote unquote, of like going to the universities and selling the MOOCs through the universities, which could have worked. However, you know, the universities were like, yeah, I get that. And I get you want to share revenue with me, but like, what do my teachers actually then do? <laughs> and so basically, we just pivoted again to selling um, already delivered online degree programs um, and helping students finance them. But the business is not the massive success e hoped for. The, the thing basically is Nigeria basically normalizes you, right? Like it, it, you, you get a very strong survival instinct when you do business in Nigeria. And so what that does is it keeps kind of like suffocating your dream. <laughs> you get very realistic about the world. You know what I mean? And so what, what happened at that point was I had become, the, the vision became so small that we unconsciously were serving such a small market and we didn't even realize it. But at some point, we started to hit the barriers of scale because these courses were really expensive and people weren't necessarily earning enough. I started to think, what else could we do? But then my thought process was also, 
yeah, but yeah, you could do all these more amazing things, but like that would break things, you know. Right now, you're kind of making some money. It's okay. It's not fantastic. You you know, but you're you're living. You're alive. <laughs> the, the the startup is not dead. Hungry for ideas, he reaches out to people he thinks could help. One of these people is an American, Jeremy Johnson, another wunderkind, who has already built two successful edtech companies. This was somebody who was a little bit further along in, on the path that I was going. And so I, I sought him out <laughs> aggressively. <laughs> he feels that Jeremy could really help. If only he could get a meeting. I kept emailing him and he wouldn't respond. And then finally, he gets an email back saying, Oh yeah, I can see you tomorrow. There's just one small problem. Jeremy's in New York. And he happens to be back visiting Waterloo in Canada. And what I did, and he still probably doesn't know till today, was I was like, yeah, sure, I can meet you tomorrow at 2 p.m. And I, I basically went, borrowed money from my friend Arjun and went to Toronto that night, took the overnight bus <laughs> to New York, and I was there with a Starbucks for him at 2 p.m. <laughs> amazing, amazing. And so for people who don't know, just tell us how long is that bus ride oh, from, from man, Waterloo in Canada? So to Waterloo to Toronto is three hours. Yeah. And then from Toronto to New York City is 16 hours. Wow. <laughs> so yeah. you, you've just done this epic overnight yeah. bus trip, yeah. I rolled just, into New York City. Just rolled into New York City. It was crappy. I think in those days... Everything was a make or break moment. <laughs> and you didn't know what, what, what will be the, the determining event. You pulled all the stops to make that thing happen. So 2 p.m., yes. New York City. Yes. Tell us about that meeting. We just started talking. So I was telling him, hey, this is, what, this is what happens the last time we saw, right? Like I've gone through this crazy experience. Things are going kind of sideways. And then we started talking about, about he started telling me about he went to Kenya trying to figure out um, kind of a more scalable way to educate lots of people. But then they quickly realized that the kids, the, the, the cost of the education, of a quality education, folks would never be able to pay for, which was the problem I had. So we started talking about what that idea could look like and, and stuff. And, and so I, was, I, I picked out some nuggets from it. And also it tallied with a few experiences that I had had on this journey. And one of those experiences was um, one day I was coming back from the office and I saw a lot of people at the national stadium. You know, I asked um, a, a friend, like, what's going on here? Like, is there, is there an event, a match, whatever, what's going on? And we're like, no, like, they're here to write the immigration exam. So we, we weaved through the traffic and I didn't think much of it. But then later in the evening, on the news, they, uh, they had shown that uh, apparently at the immigration exam, there were, there were over 60,000 people at the exam and there was a stampede and so some people died. This is the exam to immigrate to... Yeah, to, no, to, to, to become an immigration officer. Oh, to become an immigration officer. Yeah. Okay, so, so to many become a young, civil servant. A civil servant, yeah. Right. So many young people wanted that job. And I was like, that's crazy that 60,000 people could show up for an exam. Like, imagine if you could even just find like 10 geniuses from that. Like how much, how much like money, impact, you know, how much could you change those people's lives and how much could they even produce? At this meeting in New York, Jeremy mentions how he's having a tough time finding qualified engineers for his business. Even though salaries are pretty decent, from $150,000 to $200,000. And it made E think back to that massive crowd of people in Lagos 
trying to become civil servants. And I was like, dude, we could train some Salesforce engineers if that's how much you're... <laughs> you're, you're but it was funny, a joke, but basically that was kind of what, what kind of fueled the, the conversation. So the conversation we basically had was, hey, if I go and start this company, will you back me? <laughs> and he was like, sure, let's do it. Inspired, he returns to Lagos and pivots. He starts running Coding 101 classes and then getting his students gigs on global freelancing platforms. It's the start of a new business, Andela. It's a simple model. So what happens is you basically find the most talented. You have a very extensively data-driven recruitment process where anybody can apply, but you basically filter out a subset, less than 1% of the entire pool of applicants. So you took that national stadium yes, work and then Yes, and then found the 10 people, <laughs> right? And then take those 10 people, invest $15,000 into them, paying them, housing them, making sure they're immersed, making sure they're learning in a structured learning program that basically transforms them from raw talent to superstar, right? And then place them with Google, Facebook. And because they're so smart, the process works, right? <laughs> yeah. Because they can learn anything. Realistically, these, these guys could learn anything. They were way smarter than anybody had ever seen. And they would get into Stanford if they were a bit more meritocratic. A few months later, Jeremy visits Lagos, fresh from his own company's successful IPO. He loves what he sees. And E has an important idea. I've just gone through this really harrowing experience of trying to build a company. <laughs> Am I ready to lead another one? <laughs> you know? Would I not just rather be the one worrying about how much money is in the bank and whose salary and just focus for a few years on just like executing, knowing fully well that, you know? And it was very obvious that he had the, because he had the track record, he could raise capital. He joins forces with Jeremy and some others who are passionate about this new startup. We basically partner up. Um, he becomes CEO of the combined entity, which was with Fora, basically morphing into Andela. Um, and then, um, and then we, we just, I was here in Lagos running operations and recruitment um, while, you know, they were over there in the U.S. Um, getting the jobs. Often you see founders will hold an idea close to their chest or they, they are reluctant to add new co-founders. What was it about your experiences, E, that made you so open? Well, I think it was the, the nature of the ecosystem I grew up in. When I was at Waterloo, I was very famous for like hosting founders. So a lot of like people came to my house and stayed at my house and would share ideas and work together. But one thing I always um, admired about those founders is they always ask for help. <laughs> it is actually harder for um, people who grew up in this environment because as you know, like we live in a very low trust country and people are often taken advantage of. Basically, you, 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 you shy away from asking for help. You, you always, you kind of put up a facade all the time. But my experiences with other successful founders taught me that if you don't ask for help, nothing, nothing happens, right? Was there any difficulty dividing up the roles in those early days at Andela? Or was well, it everything was, we were able to figure out because the, the mission was very clear, right? So, I mean, like, Jeremy was best able to be CEO because he could raise money, he had seen scale before, and, there, and he had a lot of very deep insights about the educational process and how it needed to be designed to deliver the outcome of what Andela is. And especially on the marketing and branding side, he was just excellent about crafting the narrative. And I learned 
so much from him about those things, right? I, I had all the local network and contacts, so I was, you know, it made sense that I would be on the ground and that I would also help with re- recruiting because I had the profile to do that. Lots of young people had seen me in the entrepreneurship space. I had a little bit of a following, so people were paying attention to what I was saying, and so that made that easy, right? So you said you were all really aligned on the mission. Yes. What was the mission in those founding days? We have a deck <laughs> that I still have on my computer. Yeah. And what he says was, how would you create 1 million jobs in the developing world? That was basically it. <laughs> and what was the Andela answer at the time? The Andela answer at the time was, what 1 million jobs? <laughs> 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 what 1 million jobs can you do from Africa? Because it wouldn't make sense for you to ship 1 million people around the world if you create 1 million jobs. But what 1 million jobs would you, would you be able to do? And, and the, when we thought about it, tech, because tech didn't require you to be physically present, was, was, one, was, a, was, a, was where the one million jobs were because there's just so much demand in San Francisco and New York and all these other capitals for talent, right? And, and so if you matched the huge demand, um, the huge supply of young talent coming from Africa in particular, Africa is going to be more than half of the world's working population in 18 years. So not a very long time, right? And then all these tech jobs that are, that are under incredible strain and systems, like Amazon's hiring every day, and because of that, they're pricing out of this world. If you match the two, you would answer the question, right? But what was your idea or your insight about how you would get that kind of scale? Like how you would, how would you rapidly train all yeah, these? Yeah, so it evolved over time. I think the first thing was um, you built for the customer who was the, the US company looking for talent. And what, and what they would want is they want Stanford-level talent for India-level prices, right? <laughs> um, and, and the beautiful... Well, was India an important reference point? At yeah, this? it was. Yeah. Everybody compared us to India right. and wondered why we would do it in Nigeria if India was already doing it. Right. <laughs> And, and what our, was your answer? Our answer was very simple. The best Indians are CEO of Google. <laughs> they already left for Silicon Valley. You're not going to get them. <laughs> right? In Africa, the best Africans are probably working some dead-end job somewhere. Right? But they're definitely not CEO of Google yet. So you saw a big arbitrage opportunity. Huge. Huge opportunity where we could answer that question for, for businesses. How do I get Stanford-level talent at India prices? Why did Andela work, but not Fora? But not Fora. Hmm. I think there are a few things. The first was um, Andela started because of the experience of the founders, um, especially Jeremy. We avoided some pitfalls. For example, what I would have done if I wasn't working with Jeremy, was to try and go and get a university license, right. which would have delayed us four, five, ten years. And I saw friends go down that path. Yeah. But what Jeremy did was design the program around not getting a university license right. and doing things that today seems seem obvious, but at the time seemed very stupid. Can you give us an example? E? Paying people to train. <laughs> yeah. like, and he went the path of pain because pain did three things for us. Number one, it actually eliminated the key worry for a lot of these people, which was, how do I survive while I do this? 
<laughs> how does my family survive while I do this? Yeah. Right? And then the pain also did the second thing. It made us a company rather than an educational institution. Right. So that got the government off our backs, right? Yeah. And then pain also did the third thing was that we had more applicants <laughs> because it was so obvious what you were doing. I mean, the first pitch we did was get a job, no experience required. <laughs> and that was a pitch that sold because a lot of people, and then so that's why we we're able to attract such large numbers. So I think it's really that non-traditional approach, but it only comes from the experience of having built companies before. And that's one of the things that... that um, Gets, gets at me in the ecosystem. You're not getting a lot of large outcomes because people, a lot of people don't have the experience building businesses here mm. or building businesses anywhere, <laughs> right? Jeremy had taken a company from nothing to IPO and so he had that level of experience and, and he could transfer on the lessons from that to us who had spent all this time running around in Lagos and building networks and knowing people so we could implement. So how did Andela grow so fast? Because it grew, it scaled yeah, super quickly, right? Yeah, it was about the team, right? Yeah. Like the, the team just had the experience to do it. We knew what to do. We knew how to translate um, a, pro- a solution to a problem we faced into a process that could scale, right? And those are things you can't teach in business school, right? They're things that you learn practically on the job. And then the other thing was capital, obviously. Right. Right? Capital made the difference. Um, so Andela raised a ton of money. They, right? they could raise a ton of money. And, and that really boiled down to the genius of Jeremy in um, being able to craft a story that was inspiring for the investor um, and also delivering against that story, right? <laughs> so e, how did it feel to be part of something that was just growing so fast, this this baby of yours, and it, yeah, was, it was a rocket ship. It was madness. We're moving every month. <laughs> it, was, it was crazy. Um, you, you just never feel it in the moment because, you know, in the moment, you're just worried about the next thing that will break. And it will break. Something will break. And you got to fix it. So, I mean... I mean, early 2015, you know, we had seen this early success with Andela, but we were scaling so quickly that we're running out of space pretty much every month. And so my job was real estate. (laughs) Andela is booming. Its first coding class in 2014 had just four engineers. But by the end of 2015, there's more than 100. In a few more years, there'll be more than 700. And Andela has a stack of contracts to provide remote development work for big US companies. Money is pouring in. Andela's seed round is over $10 million. In 2015, they raise a $14 million Series A. But E is getting restless. The annoying thing about scale is after a while, the major problems are solved and you start to look inevitable. And that's where your heart sinks, right? Because <laughs> at the end of the day, you started out, everybody underestimated you and they thought you were, you were stupid and you couldn't do anything. And you got to the point where now everybody is kind of like, oh, obviously it's going to be done. And that puts you, first of all, it puts you under a lot of pressure <laughs> yeah. to stick to what worked in the early days. So you often don't want to go in new directions because your point is, look, people are coming to us because they think what we're doing works. So why would we try something new? Right. <laughs> right. And that's the point where it starts to get boring. <laughs> he starts thinking about the future and it kind of scares him. 
I remember I had a dream and I broke out in sweat. And what happened in the dream was I was at the airport. I was traveling for a vacation and there were a lot of Andela fellows in the airport with me. And I was like, hey, guys, what's up? Like, I mean, what are you guys doing? And, and basically, we're just like, yeah, um, I'm moving. I'm moving to, to Paris. I'm moving to Germany. I'm moving to California. I have a job there. And it, you know, I woke up broken in sweat because it's just going to be like, man, like we're going to basically build the largest migration of tech talent <laughs> from Africa, which... So you had a honest, nightmare about brain drain. Yes, huge. And so I thought, look, somebody has to build... Somebody has to figure out how we're going to make this business successful. The local ecosystem was missing important things that would keep these world-class software engineers in Africa. If he wanted a local Silicon Valley, he would have to start building that critical infrastructure himself. I took some months off to go for a national service and just seeing how much the, the entire country needed um, tech to infuse their lives. Like daily people need to be able to use tech. And today they don't because... Um, there's no the exchange of value process for every business is still fairly cash based and manual because payments doesn't flow in in that process in that business process. So you can you can talk about tech all you want in 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 VI and Yaba, but at the end of the day, when the average northerner wants to pay for milk, he's not using M-Pesa. <laughs> By the way, M-Pesa is a way to transfer money on your mobile phone, right? He's paying cold hard cash. And so I, I toured the north and saw that, and it gave me a different perspective of what it means for tech to really influence a population. He realized that for Africa to really take advantage of technology, the continent needed critical infrastructure, like digital payments. It was basically access to market, talent. What's the talent going to do? <laughs> and at the end of the day, the, the, the loop is not complete if the talent doesn't get access to market with tech products that are fantastic, and then build big businesses. Andela is still booming. In the middle of 2016, it announces a $24 million investment round led by Mark Zuckerberg's Chan Zuckerberg Initiative. But E knows what he has to do. Eight weeks after the Zuck round, E tells the world that he's launching a new company, Flutterwave. The mission? Solve digital payments in Africa. So you make this leap and you make it into an area that you... you, you yeah, I don't know you, much. You don't really have much experience in right now, which is the whole payments yeah. services, yeah. right? And, and you've gone away and you've researched it carefully and yeah. you've spoken to all your friends yeah. in the banks and someone at a regulator. Um, how did you go about getting Flutterwave actually working? Yeah, so I mean, it really boiled down to, again, the lessons I learned at Andela. And the, the first thing is, who's the customer? <laughs> right, that's what we figured out with Andela that made it successful. So I started there, right? And what had happened was I had a few friends um, at Access Bank. They were one of our clients at Andela. So Access Bank is one of the big banks in yes, Nigeria. Yes, yes. And, they, and we worked very closely with them. And we're getting a special view into all the challenges from the bank's perspective of, of making payments more seamless and secure for their customers. And so we the first deal that we started to work through, um, at the time, I think Uber was, was looking, 
was trying to work with a bank, a local bank, to to do the acquiring, and and basically that was kind of a, a moment for the bank because for the first time you had this global big fast growing tech company really looking for a specialized service that not many banks locally had the expertise to do. Quite frankly, no, no bank. So Africa has this incredibly fragmented payment systems, right? Yes. And Flutterwave was basically trying to simplify all of that. Exactly. You want to have this thing that makes it super easy for anyone to accept payments or to, to make, make payments. Payment. Yeah. That must have been hard to build. Oh, it's cr- incredibly difficult to build. <laughs> it's why we're on planes every day, right? Because it's, it's, it's a different kind of business from, oh, I'm going to build something in my bedroom and deploy. It's more of, I'm going to sit down with the CEO of a billion dollar bank in Africa <laughs> and ask for certain things that, you know, they've never been asked for before and be able to explain to them what the value is in terms they can understand. Why was it so important to you for this to be a pan-Africa solution? Like, because that, that this is a huge thing to, to bite off, Absolutely. right? <laughs> Absolutely. So I think really um, two things. Um, first, from the customer's perspective, if I'm Uber, I really don't want to deal with 52 payment companies. (laughs) I would like you to just come correct with one. No matter how, and and no matter how big you're in Nigeria, it will always be a sticking point for me that I can use you across the continent, right? And I think we take a lot of pride as a development community in saying, oh, oh, where are you going to in Africa? Oh, Africa is not a a country. And I'm like, you know, it would be a lot more viable as a country. (laughs) And so at at Flutterwave, we say uh, Africa is not a country, but we make it feel like one. Because at the end of the day, that's really what it boils down to. It's a scale play. So if you're a big corporation and you want to come to Africa, it's important that you can deal with all of us. As the CEO of Flutterwave, how have you gone about sort of attacking the continent? <laughs> so, I, like I said, the banks are our partners right. and we do this regional place. But you're so, doing multiple countries. You've, you've, really, you've really gone for the rapid scaling model. Yeah, again. I mean, this is how we were taught to do it at Andela. <laughs> Andela is also scaled rapidly the same way, right? Yeah. Um, what it really boils down to is the, the big partners are the banks. Yeah. And so when we deal with a banking partner, we like to deal with them as a group. Yeah. So we don't just... Um, go and say, hey, give us Nigeria. We like, we want the whole group. Right. We will connect your group and then we would, we would then use the banks as anchors to scale into it. Then from a product perspective, we build in regions. So, because it's, it's amazing the amount of trade that happens between regions mm. that goes to New York and then comes back. Right. So that's actually one of the core demographics we attack. It's ridiculous. But for example, in Kenya, if you wanted to send a wire as a Kenyan company, yeah, to a Ugandan company, right? It's got to go through New York. It has to go through New York, which is ridiculous because I could just take the cash and drive across the damn border myself, (laughs) (laughs) right? Which is what a lot of other small business people do because they're like, I don't see the point of like incurring cost of $35 per transaction plus percentage to go to New York and back when I could just literally overnight drive across the border with the money. So what we're trying to do really is, 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 we connect the region so that their trade blocks are stronger. And then we connect that region to other regions so that those regional trade blocks are stronger. <laughs> and then we connect those regional trade blocks and the continent to the whole world so that Africa can participate as an equal in global trade, which is the entire mission of the, of the business. One of the things you did in the very early days of Flutterwave is you 
um, you did Y Combinator. Yes. Most famous yes. tech accelerator Absolutely. in the world. Yes. E, what role has Y Combinator played in the speed of your growth? So I think Y Combinator was very helpful to us um, in helping us to, to attract the capital. Um, you know, we have a proverb in Africa, we say if, uh, if a tree falls in the middle of the forest, right? And no one hears it, right? <laughs> it, what, what happens, right? <laughs> and I think for us... We does it really fall? It doesn't really fall, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so for us, we were growing very fast, but not a lot of people, first of all, even thought about Africa as an investment destination for them or as a viable investment destination for them. Um, and... And we could have told the story ourselves, but it would have been a harder story to tell. We would never have had 300 plus of the best investors in the world in one room listening to that story. In two and a half minutes, we got a chance to basically show global investors that Africa is a viable investment destination because there are companies that grow at Facebook scale here. Like Andela, Flutterwave is another rocket ship. Although it only launched in 2016, Last year, 2017, Flutterwave processed over $2 billion of payments across more than 20 million transactions. It's already got over 100 partners, including nearly 50 banks and hundreds of developers have integrated on its platform. You've had this advantage of seeing some of the most interesting tech ecosystems in the world. You've also been an integral part of this ecosystem and Andela's made a big contribution to this ecosystem. What does the African tech ecosystem need most right now? Yeah, I, I really think the next challenge for the ecosystem is, is being able to tap into the digital transformation wave that's kind of going on um, and collaborating with the established players, having the humility <laughs> to collaborate with established players to gain access to market. That's, that's the next step. Um, payments is now a soft problem, maybe, maybe even oversolved, right? There's so many businesses solving that problem. But now the next thing is, how do you um, achieve scale by working together with an established player? Um, now, in tech, in other countries like Silicon Valley, it's easy to build on somebody's platform because these, these businesses are default open. Right. So, you know, Facebook is default open. Google is default open. Enterprise businesses in the country don't even have APIs. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, so you're starting from less than ground zero. Um, and, and, but that's what's required to even get there. I think our tech, our tech ecosystem has tried to be an island rather than actually integrate itself into the fabric of the economy. Mm-hmm. And I think we've become too standoffish. We've been, you know, government is just not doing anything, blah, blah, blah. No one's actually engaging government. There's a lot of psychological reawakening we have to do to teach tech ecosystems that they do not exist in a vacuum. <laughs> and the ecosystem is broader than a few tech bros sitting together at a table and drinking lattes and talking about tech. And it's like actually building stuff for real companies that impacts real people's lives. So that's what that's what we need now. E, it's been a great pleasure chatting with you. Yeah. Yeah. But you got to get on a plane, man. I got to run. You got to get, get out of here. Yeah, yeah. 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 like an hour. Thanks for listening to the Revolution of Necessity. If you enjoyed this podcast, please click subscribe so you don't miss any episodes. It would also be great if you could help us out by telling your friends and colleagues about it and rating us on SoundCloud, Stitcher 
Apple Podcasts, or whatever your favorite podcast platform is. We'd also love to hear from you. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Medium, Instagram. All the links are on revolutionnecessity.com. Or just send me an email, david at revolutionnecessity.com. Thanks again to Omidyar Network for supporting this podcast. To learn more about what Omidyar Network does, check them out at omidyar.com. This episode was produced by Julia Alsop with production assistance from Ellie Lightfoot and editing help from Sarah Barrett. Our engineer is William Smith, music by Coyote Mustache. Special thanks to Bounce News Studio in Lagos and Clean Cut Studios in DC. We'll have another episode for you very soon. If there was an anthem yep. for Flutterwave, yeah. or, or even just for you, your own personal anthem. Now, it's actually funny, but the, the song I play the most in those moments is, is a song called You Don't Know by Jay-Z. Okay. And, and the song really just talks about like, he's basically built the empire that is Rock Nation. I actually went to a concert with Jay-Z last year yeah. and he was basically singing the song and he goes, I told you. <laughs> so I think I listened to that song. I actually listened just to the recording of that concert because wow. for me, it's basically, I want to be there in five, 10 years. We're telling the rest of the world, we told you <laughs> that this was going to be a huge opportunity for the rest of the world. And, you know, if whether you're singing with us, <laughs> I told you, or whether, you know, you're, you're kind of regretful that you missed the next China, you know, we want to be there to, to figure out and we work every day to, for that moment. <laughs>